welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I dive back into the NFT space with our guest, Louise from Fingerprints DAO. Fingerprints DAO collects artworks created using smart contracts in a creative way, and it's made up of a collection of artists, curators, and creators. We explore generative blockchain native NFTs like autoglyphs and how these differ from most of the straight-up JPEG-based NFTs that we're familiar with. We also look at the difference between art on the blockchain and collector's items. Louise and Tarun also share insights into a ton of different projects, NFT collectives, initiatives. Anyway, so if you're interested in diving in, we're going to add a lot of links for this one in the show notes if you want to explore all of those. But before we start in, I want to let you know about the upcoming ZK Jobs Fair. It happens on September 30th, and this is our fourth time bringing together top talent with hiring teams in the ZK space. If you are looking for a new opportunity and you want to start working with a project focused on ZK, do apply. It is all held online and it's a great way to meet your potential future employers and colleagues in a pretty casual setting. We hold it on gather.town. So hope to see you there. I've added the link to apply in the show notes. I also want to say a big thank you to this week's sponsor, Alio. Alio is a new public L1 blockchain tailor-made for building private applications. It's based on cutting-edge research in the field of zero-knowledge cryptography. The project combines the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash, and the scalability of a rollup. They've also built a new smart contract language from the ground up called Leo, which enables folks who may not be cryptography PhDs to still be able to harness the power of zero-knowledge proofs. And in doing so, they can build the next generation of private applications like front-running resistant decentralized exchanges, hidden information games, regulated stablecoins, NFTs, topic of this episode, and more. Do check out the website, alio.org, to learn more about the protocol Alio is also inviting the community to participate in an ongoing setup ceremony for trustlessly generating the system parameters. I actually worked a little bit with the Alio team on an earlier iteration of this setup, so I personally am excited to run it. If you want to contribute and learn more, do check it out at setup.alio.org. I've added all the links in the show notes. I want to say thank you again, Alio. Now here is our episode all about Fingerprints DAO. So this week, Tarun and I are chatting with Luis from Fingerprints DAO. So welcome to the show, Luis. Hi, hi there. And welcome back, Tarun. Hey, always, always happy to be here. Luis, can I call you the co-founder of this DAO? Like, is there such a thing as a co-founder of a DAO? I'm curious how you describe your role in this project. It's a, it's a tricky question because we're supposed to say no, but everything has a, a, like a founding group. Uh, in some sense, and people naturally tend to seek uh, leaders. So I think in the early days, it's important uh, for the DAO to have at least some kind of leadership. But if the idea is to truly be a DAO, so decentralized, autonomous organization, we should expect that the, it's not reliant on a single individual or a group of individuals. Uh, but in in the early days of any project, it's very hard not to uh, not to have a group of people that are really that have the idea are pushing the project forward because 
Every idea kind of starts with one, two, three people. It's very hard to start already with a thousand people or something. Yeah, I think this does seem to be a challenge of launching decentralized projects. Like as much as the goal is decentralization and people want it immediately, you often do need like vision and tight coordination. And this might actually be something more doable in a small, tight knit group, at least at the start. I, I mean, I guess this is why like startups that are small can also be like more nimble. Well, if it's something that it's born already uh, finished, like a finished product, maybe you can like already bootstrap a DAO from, from day one. But if it requires any kind of vision, it's very hard not to have some group uh, that is like pushing the, the vision forward. Cool. So why don't you start off by telling us what exactly is fingerprint DAO? Oh, wait, wait, actually, is it fingerprints DAO or fingerprint DAO? Fingerprints. With an S. With an S. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So uh, Fingerprints was born as a collection, uh, I would say, like a collective collection. So where people were putting their funds together uh, to collect. We started with a collection of autoglyphs, which is this very iconic early NFT by the same creators of CryptoPunks that are now super famous. And it was the first truly on-chain NFT. It's a generative art project where every single, uh, well, the whole information, the art itself, it's stored on-chain. So what you own in the token is the art. Uh, that that was a very innovative concept. And like it sparkled a, a whole generative art uh, uh, movement afterwards, mo most recently with uh, Artworks. But uh, we started with the, this collection that has like a very important provenance, same creators as CryptoPunks, uh, and a very tight community. Me and the, the founding group, we uh, identified that, okay, it's a relatively small collection, 512 autoglyphs. And we uh, identified that, okay, maybe if we put together some funds, buy large amount of autoglyphs, First, it's going to be very hard for anyone else to replicate this idea. And second, we can use this as a focal point. So like a shelling point to start a DAO. So, okay, everybody is going to congregate out around this collection. And then we can grow the collection and also grow the activities that the DAO does. So now Fingerprints not only collects, but it also curates, uh, produces art. So we have like a collaborative project. And we are also incubating other DAOs. Uh, we've incubated one DAO called uh, Emergence DAO, which focuses on another NFT. And uh, we have some discussions about incubating another DAO now with uh, photography. I would mm. say. So it's uh, we're really expanding the the idea of what the DAO does. This sounds like it's moving incredibly quickly. How old is this project? When did you actually start it? It's four months old. Yeah, this is why <laughs> that sounds nuts. That's wild. So you've yeah. like not only have you like launched a DAO of your own, but you're like incubating others. Oh, actually, I should check. Like, is it launched? Is it is it still like an idea phase? No, no. So Fingerprints has over two hundred members. Okay. It's governed by a token that currently uh, at current market prices, the fully diluted valuation is. $280 million. Mm. Some funds uh, invested already in fingerprints, A16Z, USV, uh, Consensus, other funds as well. And it's it's launched. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes, launched? It's, 
And it's yeah. to the point where now you're even thinking of like incubating others. That's wild. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a, a framework that many DAOs are going to, to use because when you have to scale and you have to keep the incentives aligned for new projects, it's very hard to do it within a larger DAO. So if you have a, a, a different project that has a somewhat different focus and you need for the early people uh, to be really involved in the project, I think the idea of having sub-DAOs is going to be more fitting, almost like a biological uh, organism that has like, okay, it has like other cells and they communicate in some way, but they're a part of the same family or like the same body, you know, it, it can even, yeah, it can, it can even become something bigger than the, the original one. So it's a, a thing in itself, but it keeps some and leverages some of the the community that is already formed, the structure, the funds, uh, it can be uh, beneficial to both. Can you go back in time a little bit pre-Fingerprints DAO to like what you and the other co-founders were maybe working on? Like what were, what part of, I'm trying to figure out if you're coming from art or if you're coming <laughs> from all. blockchain or where, okay, so where, what's your background? Okay, so uh, I used to work in traditional finance some time ago. I worked at Goldman, I worked at Blackstone before. Uh, 2016, I left, wanted to, to, to found my own company. Eventually, I, I, I was already interested in crypto, but uh, got really interested when I was in San Francisco, saw like uh, Vitalik speaking, uh, understood like 10% of what he said. But uh, then uh, 2017 came, uh, crypto some, became something bigger where I, where I said, okay, I could go full-time in crypto now. And since 2018, I have a crypto quants fund uh, where we trade Bitcoin futures, Ether futures. And we actually have a partnership with the largest uh, quants funds in Latin America. And it's it's a more like traditional kind of funds, not venture, uh, really focusing on the large larger assets. But earlier this year, I'd say January, maybe, I became really interested in NFTs. That interest started back... So I, I had a, a anonymous Twitter account, which, by the way, Tarun was the person who plucked me out of uh, anony anonymity. <laughs> he discovered he discovered the account. Uh, the account became uh, had more followers, and I created this account to learn more about DeFi, actually. Wow. But there was a small. Are you Blue Kirby? Is this what you're telling us? <laughs> no, 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 so it's, uh, it's, it's better for people to know, okay, who is behind this? But going back to DeFi. So in DeFi, there was a small group of people that were very passionate about NFTs. And I had this car from like 2017 when I, uh, I bought one CryptoKitty, lost ETH to that. So a lot of people made money in CryptoKitties. <laughs> I lost money. So I had this, oh, this idea that, oh, this is just a game. This is not interesting. But eventually I started to dig deeper into NFTs. Uh, ended up buying a CryptoPunk, selling a CryptoPunk, having this feeling of, okay, I made some money here, but I lost something. You know, I really uh, felt like I, I was collecting this ah. stuff. 
uh, and eventually I got to art. And then like it was a, a something that really expanded the possibilities. And I felt, okay, this is so early. This is still being built, you know? So there's like space to build stuff. Uh, so it's a very interesting uh, design space, I would say, NFTs. Now, I'm curious a little bit about how the two of you intersect, because Tarun introduced me to you, Luis. So Tarun, how did you come into contact with this project? Well, you know, I think we already had the alpha leak of, uh, of Luis ran this Twitter, which had, you know, I think he undersold it, which is, uh, it, it was called Degenesance Technologies, making fun of Renaissance Technologies, ah. the, the kind of famous uh, company fund. And he just had very biting takes on things that people wouldn't want to say in public or like maybe things that were, you know, kind of unseemly that were happening in the background kind of post DeFi summer in particular. And these hot takes, I think, were appreciated by a lot of people who were paying attention, but like also no one really wanted to say anything themselves. And, uh, you know, I think right now, you know, I'd say that Anon who has similar power as to what degenesance did at that time was is is tuba but uh Mm. there's kind of like a sense in which like before luis fell down the nft collection rabbit hole i think he was he was what tuba is now so trolling DeFi, (laughs) trolling DeFi, and and and, you know over time i started just doing him more and being like what what are you doing who are you (laughs) (laughs) what is this you you know like yeah and then and then i think eventually you know as fingerprints got started, I think we started talking more. And, you know, I think fingerprints and Pleaser Dow are kind of like the sort of vanguard of that era of people moving from, or like people kind of collectivizing some of the, let's say, wealth earned from DeFi into to art collection of, of different forms. And, wow. and I think to me, the thing that was most appealing about fingerprints is, you know, on chain art is kind of this very unexplored area because almost all I'm putting air quotes crypto art uh, right now is really just like traditional generative art and doesn't take advantage of the medium in any way, shape or form. Um, And I think the idea of having like a curated kind of set of art that is trying to be at the forefront of things that take advantage of actually being on the blockchain is, is really important. So Hmm. I think, the thing that convinced me of this was the which which I guess in retrospect may be not viewed as favorably. It was hash masks because hash masks did this thing that sounds really stupid, but nor this this can't happen in normal art. It sort of happens by social consensus in normal art. It doesn't happen normally. Which is when hash masks are minted, the first owner has the right to change the name, which is a text field in the NFT, and then it's burnt on any subsequent transfer. So it can never be changed wow. after that. And there's there's a lot of stuff regarding ownership and the art itself that somehow is like never quite... I feel like a lot of blockchain artists just like trying to go after hype beasts and supreme kind of stuff. But yeah. you know, I think what what's appealing about fingerprints is they really focused on this this kind of more native to blockchain style art. So you had mentioned this autoglyphs kind of on this topic. I actually don't know what that is. So, I mean, I understand it's generative art. It's on the blockchain. Tell me, tell me what that is exactly. Like, what does it look like? How does it work? Uh, So autoglyphs, they look like QR codes. (laughs) A lot of people say they, they look like QR codes, but 
If you have a reference of Mondrian, Mondrian has some studies that are very similar to autoglyphs. They are basically this, uh, well, glyphs, well, like a keyboard kind of icons, where you have like 10 different patterns that form an art itself. Like, so that's the, the base pattern and the, the way the algorithm combines it into the, the art itself. They are on purpose very simple because to be fully stored on chain, uh, they have to be very simple. But that that was the innovation. So the real art that's that's very that's very interesting about uh, autoglyphs because they are built on the very early reference for generative art, which is uh, SolidWorks. And what you see as the image is not the art. The arts are the instructions of how to draw that. So what you have stored on chain is the code that generates the art. And that's like a cake recipe, you know? So the cake, you see the cake, but the the real art is the recipe in that sense. So it's it's a very interesting concept that underlies uh, a lot of the generative arts. But the most interesting thing is taking that that already existed. The creators, when you go to the website of Larva Labs, when they show autoglyphs, they say that, oh, we are using like wall drawings by uh, uh, Solewitz, like the same reference. But the fact that they can do it on chain. And there's a- another thing that is also interesting. Uh, so the the algorithm uses the, the transaction hash. So uh, the transaction itself to create the art. So in a way, the person minting the autoglyphs is part of the creation itself. So th- that wasn't possible at all in uh, uh, another setting. Like this is native to the technology. Now that's that's why it's it's uh, unique and very innovative in, in, in that sense. Is the algorithm itself, and this is something I've never fully understood also about like crypto kitties back in the day, but like is the algorithm for generation, is that in a smart contract or is it called by a smart contract? Could you even write that into a smart? It seems in the, like it. in the in the case of autoglyphs, like there's two two different things. Like the generation of the art itself is in the autoglyphs uh, contract. Okay. What you see on OpenSea, for example, when you go see autoglyphs, that's the result of the instructions there. Oh. You can use the same instructions to print one autoglyph, and if you go to the bottom of. Uh, the official autoglyphs uh, website, uh, Larva Labs. There's a uh, I forgot the name of the the machine that just like prints uh, instructions. It, it prints like on paper. You can write it on paper. You can you can write use your hands to to write an auto to to follow the same instructions and and get you the same image of an autoglyph. Interesting. It's really a recipe. It's not an image that is stored on chain. So I mean, one thing to remember is like. As Luis mentioned, Solowit is a sort of this famous artist from like the Northeast, from like the 1970s and 80s, who every single one of his pieces that exists around the world, he basically had done none of. I mean, I think I think there's probably some small number of Solowit pieces that were actually made by him, but his entire thing was about writing extremely detailed instructions so that anyone could replicate them. And then each replica would be slightly different so somehow he printed NFTs like before NFTs existed. And so this is sort of the, this is like the on-chain, he, he's sort of like one of the quintessential modern art canon from like the 70s and 80s. So I, I think like this type of stuff, at least personally, I find really compelling as it takes what 
people take as modern art and sort of brings it into the 21st century versus kind of like I took a Bible and put it in a washing machine and now mm. it's a <laughs> piece of art in a gallery if yeah. it's in a gallery. Yeah. No, I've seen that in a gallery. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you go to the Autoglyphs website, you can see it. they have a GIF of a GIF of a CNC plotter rendering the autoglyphs on paper. Okay. So it's the same instructions, but instead of an image, you can render it on paper. It's 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 very similar. It's what Arun said. It's uh, it's the same concept of very detailed instructions of how to reproduce the art, and the instructions themselves are the the art. Cool. Not what not a reproduction. I have a question about like you mentioned sort of art blocks and. Are CryptoPunks generative or aren't, aren't they JPEGs? Like, aren't they made before, generated maybe before using something and then stuck on chain? I Like, yeah, tell me, tell me how they compare. So they're generative in the sense that you combine the characteristics. And as far as I'm aware, like the artists themselves didn't know the outputs from the beginning. Okay. Only the... I think they knew like the probability of each attribute and the computer generated the final image. So in that sense, they are generative. A lot of labs themselves, like the artists, they do this distinction of calling uh, CryptoPunks collectibles and autoglyphs art. Uh, I think there's some dispute there. Like what is art (laughs) is a infinite rabbit hole of a question. But it's very clear that uh, for the more traditional uh, art folk, this is seen like, or autoglyphs are clearly seen as taking this uh, Solowitz reference, like building on this mm. reference. While CryptoPunks, they're, they're interesting, they're generative, but some people would see them more as a collectible than, than art. Now, now maybe they're, they're, they're almost getting to the, <laughs> to the point of where you would just call them art. But. And then there's art blocks, which I... It's a different project. Is that generative on-chain? So Artblocks is actually a platform. Artblocks, I'm not entirely sure when they were launched, maybe October last year, around that. So Artblocks takes this idea of you can take an algorithm and having people come to the, in this case, to the website to mint and generate a new art piece. And it extends to the idea of building a platform on that. So you have... Hundreds of artists, they launched their projects on art blocks. So uh, actually the name Fingerprints came from a blog post that I wrote back in, I don't know, February, March. So Fingerprints of the blockchain, because uh, the idea was art blocks was like bringing this renaissance because Autoglyphs was in 2019. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a few projects in between Autoglyphs and the launch of art blocks as a platform. But with art blocks, that was really when everything acquired another scale. A lot of great artists use the platform to mint. So uh, most of the, the generative art projects that we see that are the most famous, like Fidenza, Ringers, uh, Chromis Squiggles, they're all on art blocks. Art blocks is uh, like gigantic now uh, and introduced a lot of people, myself included, to the concept of uh, generative art. So art blocks became something much, much bigger. And a lot of people are trying to replicate their success now. One thing I just want to add is like almost all the pieces on art blocks are generative in that they're produced like processing or unity or something like that. But they are all produced prior to launch 
right? So they are truly just normally normal JPEGs. They're not actual like mm. things that. And part of the reason is most artists don't write custom smart contracts for their art. I think Autoglyphs is a really great example where the smart contract is sort of the art, but it's like the input to the art is the randomness from the blockchain and the randomness from the users who call the mint function. But I think like what we're starting to see is there have been people like Def Beef and Xerox Mons who are also starting to do like directly on-chain types of art. And there is that distinction in the sense that like art blocks and ETH block art are you know, for instance, places where people who make generative art go, but the, the art is not actually on chain. It's the art is uh, made beforehand. In the case of these uh, generative art on chain, who is the artist? I feel like this is going to be one of these like <laughs> existential art questions. But like, is the artist the person who creates the rules or is the artist the one who inputs the randomness? Who's the creator? I think there is little dispute that the creator of the, the algorithm is the creator. I think we'll start to see something different happening if we give the ability for people to curate. So let's say you have a, uh, you have an algorithm, it, it generates uh, with some output, it generates like some, some random output, but you can only, you can choose what you mint and you have like a fixed collection of, I don't know, 500, 1000. In this case, you have, okay, I have the generator. So if I'm the artist, I have the generator. But the person is, in a way, uh, curating the art and choosing the output. So in that sense, it's uh, it starts to, to blur a little bit more the lines. But we, we will still have to see more examples of that. For, for now, we all see like them as, as they belong to the artist. So another question that I keep having about just the NFT craziness in general is like, how is value actually being assigned to these at the start? Like, how does that process happen that all of a sudden this thing is valuable? So for most of the early NFTs, they were either free, so free to mint, like in the case of CryptoPunks. Uh, you could just mint and pay gas costs for minting. Autoglyphs were almost free, like, uh, like 0.2 ETH or 0.02 ETH, like mm -hmm. at the time where ETH was very cheap 80 as bucks, well. 80 bucks, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But autoglyphs, uh, autoglyphs uh, like they add up in a few hours because people already, like there was a, a small but a very fanatical group that was following uh, Larva Labs from that time. Like minting any of these projects would be like a big win because it's basically free. Mm -hmm. and, and the value was very like organic in, in that sense where it just like some people sold for five ETH thinking, okay, that was a great deal. And like now autoclips are like 400 ETH or something, 450 ETH. Uh, each and, and or total? Each. Oh my each. gosh. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. Yeah, each and the, the, the cheap ones. Uh, but... <laughs> Because there are some different rarities for uh, each autoglyph. But it's like the way to assign value is, is very subjective, uh, I would say. Now we are seeing a lot of, now the NFTs are, are going for like high prices. We are seeing a lot of different uh, models on how to price things from the start. Artblocks, for example, is a good case study for this because from the beginning, they would charge small minting price. So in the early days, minting anything on art blocks was a great thing to do because you immediately 
basically like the get your money back uh, from minting, but it became very competitive. So people had to, to spend a lot of gas. So that's that's not a great model because in the end, who is getting paid the most is the are miners. the miners, the miners, <laughs> yeah. yeah, not the artists. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and 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 it became like a bad experience for people minting, so they decided to change to a Dutch auction. So you start at a high price, and the price keeps going down until uh, it reaches a low price, and you can buy from the beginning, but knowing that you are going to pay the highest price, this is better to the artists. Some of the artists are getting eight, ten million dollars now from one drop in art blocks. And this is this is a very different model. And some other artists, that's not very usual, uh, common for generative art, but some artists just prefer to do auctions. There's uh, some experimentation going on uh, in the market on how to price uh, from the beginning. Cool. I have a last question on autoglyphs, and then I want to focus more on the DAO itself. But you mm-hmm. mentioned rarity and rare attributes. What, like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> These look like QR codes. They're basically just like lines generated in kind of seemingly random patterns. How are there rare features? Like with CryptoPunks, I think it's pretty obvious because it tends to be like Mm -hmm. the smoking avatar or like the skull. Like there's like very, you you know, clear, that's a rare thing. But when Mm -hmm. you're talking about these like lines, how, how do people figure it out? So there are uh, 10 different symbol uh, schemes. There are like crosses, lines, circles, squares. So the combination of these uh, makes it like rare or, or not. So I think that the least rare autoglyph, which is like a, uses like an X and uh, two bars to generate the art, has uh, 128, I would say. I can check this number. So all 128 and, and the least, the, the rarest of them all, which is type 10 symbol, it only has eight. So, ah, so it's 121 for type one, which is the most common until it goes to eight for type 10. So this is, uh, the rarity is assigned in this way. It, it's easily uh, identifiable when, once you see and once you go. And people people created communities around it and like they know every single detail. They know like, uh, it, it's it's crazy. Be- people can start to, to get very uh, specific in this kind of uh, things. Like they really study the art. One thing that people have to maybe, you know, I know the audience of this, podcast is usually more technical is that autoglyphs and deaf beef are probably the only actually quite like technically challenging art to have made so far that i've seen i mean maybe xerox mods a little bit but but really really the two of them have like you know they go through a deployment process that doesn't look so different from building a DeFi protocol um and so like there's kind of this interesting line that's blurred between art and software development technology that I think like we don't see as often like whenever people do art and tech in like the normal world like I had I had an exhibit once um, at a museum and it's totally different it's like you can't make the medium that you're showing it on adapt to the art itself or to the viewers and in some sense that's like the unique thing about crypto generative art and so I definitely if you're technical and you're like I don't care this art stuff seems like a Ponzi scheme 
Well, first of all, remember, everything's a Ponzi scheme if you squint enough. <laughs> Second, you know, really look at the code for this type of stuff. I think you'll be more surprised at the depth that people have. Cool. By the way, Tarun, I did just hear, did you just say you had an art gallery show at some point yourself? Uh, yeah, I had, I, had, I, had, I had a showing in, in the new museum in New York in 2019. But, you know, people have asked me if I would make NFTs of this genre of art, but I have not so far succumbed to that. But maybe one day. Cool. Well, I want to I want to explore this more. I didn't know this. I didn't know that you were making art at all. So we have nice. to launch something together. Tarun. Yeah, true. <laughs> well, bring it you know, online. I'll, I'll send you the link to the, the piece if you want to put in the show notes. OK, sounds good. OK, let's move on to the DAO, you know, so far we've talked mostly about like this kind of art, this kind of NFT, giving people a bit of a sense for like what you've actually put into this DAO, what this DAO owns. So you, you kind of have given us your story to the launch of this thing. There's people who've invested in it, but how do you launch a DAO based on NFTs? Like what is this thing that is fingerprints DAO? Okay, so I've focused a lot uh, so far on, on autoglyphs, but uh, it's important to to understand as well that like the collection has grown uh, quite a lot from autoglyphs uh, since launch. So the idea was always to, okay, this is going to be something beyond this artwork itself. So Taro mentioned uh, another artist who is also one member uh, that we collect, Death Beef. Uh, and recently has become like one of the like, highest sales in NFTs as well. I think like something like two twenty seven hundred ETH. It's like ten million dollars. Just ten million dollars yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for one for a full set of each uh, one of his series. So on on the DAO itself. So when I thought about this uh, the thesis for autoglyphs, and I had uh, personally bought one, like I bought also one uh, for my company. Uh, my partner in the company also bought one. Uh, we formed a small group of people. So I'm, I'm in Brazil, actually. I mean, I mean I'm based in Sao Paulo. And we formed a, a small group of mostly uh, Brazilians, uh, people who are not really uh, crypto people, I would say, but they are. So there's a, a one unicorn founder, two actually unicorn founders people that were really into the idea of nfts but not exactly uh crypto native mm -hmm. and they pulled pull together the initial funds uh, for us to acquire the 20 autoglyphs that formed the 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 initial collection for the DAO. and the way we did is we donated uh the autoglyphs to the DAO. and that's like imagine the DAO only had tokens in treasury mm -hmm. from the beginning we donated the autoglyphs to the DAO and we received the tokens, governance tokens. And then what we did is, okay, we, now we have to have more people being part of the DAO, having uh, governance tokens as well and deciding this because like uh, up to that point was uh, like a simple collection of, it wasn't a DAO at all. So we open up the DAO already like Twitter, in a sense, this DAO started on Twitter because Twitter was, was where people... Uh, started to, to become interested in the project. I reached out to some people as well. But it was all like uh, with people that I already had some uh, contact before, like private conversations. And on the first uh, uh, phase for the DAO, I think we onboarded 50 people, if okay. I'm not mistaken. 
And then was like a more natural process. Like friends, friends of friends, I guess. Like some. Yeah, it was. It was actually the fact that we were co- started collecting autoglyphs helped a lot because other autoglyph collectors joined the DAO. Basically, I think we have like all the top five or six autoglyph collectors are in the DAO. Okay. Like from the beginning, except for Larva Labs, like the the, the creators. But all, all many artists also joined. So Death Beef was the f- one one person that joined from the beginning. So having artists joining uh, from the beginning helped a lot in the second stage where we started to expand the collection, and people would come with all the like this. They still do. Like there's a lot of suggestions flowing around. Like NFTs are being created every second. And one thing that we was part of our ethos is to be very focused mm. because there are some other DAOs that uh, basically act as like index funds where mm. they buy everything. They, they buy one of everything. It's, it, it's not a bad strategy uh, for portfolio, I would say, but we wanted to keep our curatorial thesis very tight, very strong. So we focus more on a- a- things that we're using uh, smart contracts as art, mm-hmm. like you uh, uh, know, in a, like in a way we that were was talking really about. yeah, yeah, yes, yes. So it ended up uh, so far we've collected basically uh, some innovative generative art like autoglyphs, death beef, and also some conceptual art that it's not necessarily using the blockchain to store the art. But it used in some way where the meaning of the art itself happened in, in the blockchain. So, are you talking loot? Maybe <laughs> no, no, no. This is uh, older. This is older than Ethereum. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, so, 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 so the spoiler alert here is actually the person I did that art project with is the creator of this. Uh, oh, <laughs> this. <laughs> what is it? So I think Tarun is even a better person to to explain than myself because he was much earlier than fingerprints on it. But the project is called uh, Bitcoin. Oh, wait. Yeah, I heard about this. Tell tell us more, Tarun. Do do you want to talk, Tarun? Yeah, I mean, the original Bitcoin was really like you could think of it as like, you know, in 2015, pre-Ethereum, my friend Sarah, she was... She effectively like tokenized museum membership. So each person kind of who bought a Bitcoin got a sort of token that was related to their going and seeing a museum exhibit and seeing sort of something she made. Uh, And then she would go write that effectively on the Bitcoin blockchain. So each UTXO would be an NFT effectively. And there's a certain number of UTXOs that meant you owned this thing. And so remember, this is pre-smart contracts. You can't, this is like the best you could do, right? Yeah. To make an NFT. And and at that time, I think there was only like one other one that was something similar where people had done art. Rare Pepe's came out later that year before Ethereum. Okay. But yeah, she tried to take some real life thing, give it scarcity, and then represent the ownership of that scarcity via a small set of UTXOs. But then she did this VR exhibit in 2018 where she took 3,149, I think, flower petals representing sort of inventions at Bell Labs, um, you know, who wow. created the transistor. And she went to kind of the old Bell Labs building and did this kind of like VR ceremony slash tour of the, the place. And so if you go to the exhibit, you, it's called Cloud of Petals. It like represents a lot of like the technological innovations 
that Bell Labs made over the last 50 years, but, you know, kind of an artistic rendition of it. And so each of those pedals is now backed by a Bitcoin on Ethereum. Okay, uh, so Bitcoin was on Bitcoin. It was like a writing in the, is it just like in the text field, like in the note kind of? Uh, yes, yeah, effectively, effectively. Okay, but now it's on Ethereum? I Basically, there's a redemption process. And if you redeem for a pedal, because there's 31 Fortean pedals and the pedals exist in reality, uh, you you will get the uh, private key to the UTXO. You'll get the Bitcoin UTXO later. Oh, I see. Okay. But wait, or is it still like you just said it's on Ethereum. So wait, where does it live now? So the, the, the pieces that are, are related to the pedals are on Ethereum. But there is a redemption process. So if you own one of these NFTs, you can redeem it for one of these pedals. And each pedal represents sort of like an important patent from Bell Labs. Okay, I'm just I'm trying to for some reason I'm I'm like not following this. It's like if you have an old one on Bitcoin, yeah, you yeah, could yeah. get one on Ethereum. There were yeah, so there exactly so okay. there is there is some creation process like that, but there's also a redemption process where some of the UTXOs still have private keys that you can redeem if you have the pedal. But it was multiple art projects kind of strung together. Got it. But a lot of what this is, is just like taking this art that effectively represented scarcity in some way in the real world and mapping it onto an NFT. How, well, actually, Luis, how did fingerprints end up buying Bitcoin? So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we actually had a few members that were uh, connected to Sarah. So we did this step up where we started to venture a little bit away from this idea of necessarily being on-chain or generative. When we bought IKBs, which it's this uh, 2017 project, also conceptual, very, very super interesting as well. Uh, so IKBs, and, and to just tell how we got to, to Bitcoins, I have to, to tell the story of uh, IKBs. So there's this artist that both Sarah and uh, and Mitchell F. Chen is the, the the artist from IKBs. So they both reference this uh, 1950s French avant-garde artist called Yves Klein. And Yves Klein became famous because... Did he do the color blue? Yes. Is he yeah. that guy? He just patented yes. a color? I remember, yes. I remember yes. that. So there's a, a, a famous <laughs> exhibition by Yves Klein called Zones of Immaterial Pictorial Sensibility. Everything was supposed to reference to the color blue, the, the famous Yves Klein blue, but nothing there uh, on the, the original 1950s exhibition was blue. So it was just an empty white room. He, he served drinks that made the people's uh, urine blue afterwards. <laughs> in, that <Gross. laughs> in that exhibition. The Yves Klein blue came out later. In that, in that nice. exhibition. And he sold, I think he sold two or three artworks where it was just immaterial artworks and he would give a certificate for uh, one of these artworks in exchange for gold then afterwards uh, there was a ceremony and the ceremony was the collector would burn the certificate like the only thing that connected to the art itself and Eve would dump in the Seine the river uh, half of the gold, the gold and the rest he would be using other artworks there's an artist called Mitchell F. Chen that in 2017 decided, okay, let's try to reproduce the exact same process on Ethereum. Mm. 
Well, there's the burning feature, which is useful. <laughs> yes. So what he did was he did basically a smart contract. And, and there was a series for uh, uh, this uh, IKB. IKB is if client blue. Uh, that's like the, the name of the token. So mm-hmm. he did a smart contract that where you would to mint one of these, uh, you would deposit ETH to the smart contract and you get a certificate that's the NFT. If later on you decide to burn the NFT, half of the ETH that is in the smart contract gets burned as well. So he didn't intended to do an NFT back then. NFTs were like, this was two months after the launch of CryptoPunks. There was not like something that people were creating NFTs. And he ended up creating uh, NFT. Like his like the process of uh, trying to to reproduce if clients uh, work on the blockchain, on the Ethereum blockchain, generated uh, this this idea. So this was something that a lot of members were very interested. It's very early as well. And was the first step that we uh, we decided to collect. Mitchell was uh, uh, already a member uh, also in Fingerprints. So we collected uh, three original uh, 2017 artworks and we collected others that he launched afterwards, other series from the same contract that he launched later on. But that was, uh, uh, for us, that was, okay, now we can venture a little bit more into conceptual art. And eventually we got to uh, to Bitcoins, which is an even earlier example, now uh, uh, ported to, to Ethereum. But that just goes to show that People have been thinking about these issues of value, of how NFTs uh, are created and how is value assigned for a long time, like mm. for a very long time. This is not new. Totally. So every single discussion that we see, like, oh, well, where's the value of the art? Uh, why it should be value like this? This is a conversation that has, like, it's older than every every single one of us. For sure. But but I think one thing that's important is, like, I've seen a lot of people be like, NFTs are just performance art. And it's like, yes, per, there is some excellent, amazing performance art that has existed in the world. You know, it's like, imagine if Marina Abramovich made a, a you know, an NFT, right? It's like, it's just like, there's just so many, so much stuff of this form that's existed. And most people are just, maybe it's their first time hearing it. So it's like, wow, this is crazy. But in some ways, a lot of the types of things that Fingerprints looks at and a lot of the types of things I think that are at the sort of more edge of crypto art are the types of things that, you know, we've had in the normal world for a long time, but they've been very painstaking and annoying to to make projects like that, whereas they're kind of easy for anyone to do now who can write a smart contract. Mm-hmm. Do you think that in a way, though, because it's so easy and there's this huge flood of new pieces like this, I know that right now we're in this moment of like incredible price highs and it just keeps growing and growing. But like, are you looking at this thinking like there's got to be a crash or there's going to be a deflation? There's going to be oversaturation? Yeah. Is that something you're thinking about? I don't think there will be a crash for the true generative on-chain pieces because there are very few of them. They're just there is a barrier to entry of how good of a concept have you come up with plus how well can you program. Right? And that barrier is much harder than I took a I wrote made a cute picture of a penguin, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's we've seen we've seen over the last few months a lot of the it's it was very cyclical. So it wasn't only up, 
for any collection because people like the expect it, this is the same for every market like the expectations get higher people start to price things high buying uh, in the expectation that keeps going up so it's natural that we'll see a pullback at some point uh, but i agree with the room in the sense that for some collections like uh, autoglyphs i think it's very uh, defensible uh, death beef as well people who are buying them they are less likely to be trying to flip, especially because there's so few of them and it's a very uh, high barrier to, to enter now. Uh, I, I, I believe like in the last six months for, for autoglyphs, for example, uh, the kind of people who are holding them, they don't need to sell, basically. It became more like this. That's not the same for most other projects. So I think there's uh, like the the fact that it's very easy now to do to do some of the things, uh, and the fact that the market is very rational makes curation much more important. Because to really distinguish between what what is low effort, uh, what is not uh, uh, historically important, what is not innovative, what is simply like a copycat of something that has been done before. It's important to, to have curation. When it it's all going up, it, it feels like you're missing opportunities, I would say. But having strong curation is saying no like a hundred times to say yes once. Uh, but in the downturn, that becomes very clear uh, yeah. why. So you're buying these artworks, these NFTs. It's controlled by a DAO. And there's a token that comes from that. But do you ever sell those pieces? Like, is it a buying and selling that the DAO is doing, or is it just purely aggregating? Well, so far, the DAO has only bought for a collection that we see as permanent. Uh, I don't see why we would need to sell, uh, because either you you don't believe in the asset anymore, or you need liquidity to buy more things. So you need to realize the fact that we have the governance tokens and the DAO holds governance tokens makes it e easier to just sell the governance tokens if you need liquidity. And we still think it's super early. It's not something we we see uh, as a, a need to, to sell anything now. One thing that we did differently was for... So we had this idea of using autoglyphs as a generator for like another kind of art. So in the same way we see CryptoPunks being used as a derivative... Uh, so we see like a lot of CryptoPunks derivatives in some sense or interpretations, if you if you prefer this word. We, we wanted to have something like this for autoglyphs. Uh, and we partner with a few artists. Uh, one is Aris, who has two very famous projects, Frommer Gents and Paul Squares. And autoglyphs owners were able to whitelist their autoglyphs and you in the minting process, was able to choose what the autoglyph you wanted and generate this very different artwork that was based on the underlying autoglyph, but it's a different thing. Huh. And the way we did this, this was a collab between Fingerprints and the artists. So Fingerprints had 10% uh, of the minting proceeds, received the minting proceeds from selling art from that sense. The artist got 80% of the minting proceeds and the autoglyph owner whitelisted their autoglyph also receives 10% of the, the minting proceeds. So that's something that is impossible to do in the, in the traditional world because 
You don't have to, it's, you cannot assign provenance in that way, saying, oh, you can use my artwork to do this other artwork, and I'm going to receive a cut of that. Uh, so that was one experiment we did. We want to do more like this. Uh, so that's also a possibility for the DAO to generate uh, some kind of revenue by uh, collaborating and selling arts. What happens if the the things you own drop in value? Do, do the tokens that you've issued also drop in value? Does that change the market cap in a way of the governance token? Well, it really depends on how people are valuing the, the governance token. It's reasonable to understand that, to think of it as uh, connected to the net asset value of the, the collection. But also uh, there's another component where, okay, there's the collection, there's the future uh, collection that we can still collect. So there's like the, some curatorial uh, premium, I would say, uh, associated to it. And the future of uh, the possible cash flows that the, the DAO can generate. So it's expected that like if the, if the NFT market just dropped 90%, I wouldn't expect uh, the token to be trading as a, at the same price. But it's not like one-to-one, yeah. Because uh, it's also important to remember there's no convertibility mechanism or redemption mechanism between the tokens. They are purely for uh, governance. And in a way, it sounds like, so you're creating a collection. You don't really plan on selling it. So are you building a museum then? Like, is that what that is for then? Is it like... Excuse the buzzword, but is it like the museum in the metaverse or so, something? But every everybody everybody likes the this. Oh, so it's like we're building like the new museum. So I'm a I'm also a member at Pleaser uh, with Tarome. Okay, where we are building like the Internet Museum there. So I think like the I don't like the museum kind of uh, connotation because you can have a museum like in this new digital world without having any asset. Like you can just show, ask people for permission and you can just like build an expo with like every single great collection. You don't have to own like True. a museum. We have some uh, metaverse presence. So we bought some lands in crypto voxels. We designed a building uh, to do like a gallery, like a metaverse uh, presence. But I don't think the concept of a museum really applies here. Okay. I think what we are going to see is some of these NFTs are going to start to have another dimension in DeFi. So we are going to see collateralization for some of these NFTs, some derivatives for these NFTs. I think there's like it's a huge design space uh, that I think can be explored. And having those assets is a way for you to basically buy a piece of a platform. Uh, if you see those assets, like they can be used else, elsewhere because it's everything is, is composable. Uh, so you are building, like you're basically buying a piece of a platform. So it's, it's a different thing, I would say. And, and the other thing I would uh, also add is one of the functions that these assets, they fulfill is the fact that we are building a community around them. Uh, I see the same for for Pleaser and and Doge and Doc, uh, not Doge. Where, uh, where well, now it has a name? Yeah, <laughs> what is it? After months of of flailing, uh, Dog. M- maybe we should explain what Dog is. Yeah, I don't know what this is. <laughs> you guys are so much deeper in the NFT world than I am. <laughs> I, I'm I am not, for the record. I just um, I just I'm just around enough people who are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So so basically, PleaserDAO, you know, we started to kind of buy this art from Emily, People Pleaser. 
that was like sort of the quintessential art of DeFi summer last summer. Uh, and then it kind of grew into kind of either similar time to fingerprints. It was, it was earlier. Yeah. Uh, uh, Blazer was an uh, inspiration for fingerprints, actually. Yeah, but I, I will say, I feel like I was talking with you on Twitter around that time. Like, yeah. around, because like I was in the first, like the, you know, Genesis, whatever, the people who bought the first painting group and our first uh, artwork group. And fingerprints was like within like two weeks or something. Like, it was so close. Like, I feel like I, feel like I, I DM'd you and you were like, hey, I have this idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so PleaserDAO has bought a bunch of pieces since then, uh, and PleaserDAO and fingerprints have kind of been the ones that I'd say have like the largest kind of craziest collections, both in sort of more like culturally significant NFTs like PleaserDAO, so that's why it's a little more like a museum versus kind of this really more conceptual and algorithmic art uh, in fingerprints. And PleaserDAO bought the Doge meme for four million dollars sometime earlier this year, so oh, it's yeah. like the original Doge, yeah, meme. And one of our members is Andy, who we've had on the show. Yeah. And we fractionalized the Doge and and oh. sold it. And it's now, I guess, a $500 million coin. Oh, but. my God. <laughs> so this is this, the community has been built around this one image then, the one NFT yes. that's fractionalized. So, so the, Doge, the Doge fractionalized community actually exists. It's like four 5,000 person Discord, something like mm. that. I actually I want to talk about these communities because like what are they? Are they just like there's a collection and then people join a Discord server, they get into these secret rooms if they own them or something like like I keep hearing about this around like I think someone got hacked. I think it was the what is it Bored Ape Yacht Club or something. Someone basically not hacked, but somebody kind of fished them and and got them to like send over their private keys and they lost their NFTs and it was in one of these community chats. So like somehow they'd been like fooled by someone, you know, pretending to be the founder or something like this. But I, that sort of made me realize that there's these community chats. Like, what are people talking about? Like they they join these groups and they just like talk about price or like what what is, what are these? No, yeah, I I think one thing is there's no one size fits all answer. Okay. So this is the the 2021 answer to the 2017 Telegram group. I see. But like, what do you mean? But like Telegram groups built around what? Like usually they were built around maybe one blockchain or something like that, a token sale. But what are these communities like? Like, what do they do? So I think there's a couple different cases here. Like, for example, there are uh, communities where you are discussing one particular NFT or like a bunch of, uh, and like, for example, art blocks, which I mentioned before, they have like multiple channels, each one for one artist. Okay. Where people that like the arts, they discuss and they discuss a lot. Like it's, it's not something that it, it, you, would, you wouldn't expect, okay, there's not much discussion. They can discuss price. They could discuss like details from the artwork. Oh, I found this. Like, look at this reference. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it becomes something like a group of friends, I would say. Cool. Upcoming sales, upcoming yes, pieces too. Yes, yes. So I've thought a lot about this this idea of uh, community because, well, fingerprints itself is a community. For us, uh, fingerprints and pleaser, it's much clearer because as we need to govern something, like that is building, collecting. So it needs like the discussions is like okay, uh, we what are we, uh, should we buy. Uh, what should we do, should we build? So it's not around a single NFT. 
So what called my attention to this was actually uh, the first truly successful NFT photography collection, which is called Twin Flames by Justin Aversano. And he builds a community around photography, around uh, his collection, but around photography in general, that became the go-to place for uh, photography. And what I realized is his collection is great. Like it's these, uh, he, so he did this series because he has an unborn uh, twin and she, she, she died before, before uh, being born. And he wanted to honor uh, his twin. So he took pictures of very like artistic pictures of twins around the world. But there are these hundred pictures and he launched, I think he launched in March, if I'm not mistaken. The initial launch price for these were was like 0.55 ETH. Now the floor price for Twin Flames, which is this collection, is like 100 ETH. So it's like it grown quite a lot, but it became the 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 go-to place for photography. So in a sense, he create what he created there. It's bigger than the collection itself. So I'm thinking a lot about this because. I was thinking about the question of, okay, what exactly gives uh, photography uh, value in this new paradigm here? And it's not only related to the art itself. Like it can be an interesting mm-hmm. picture. It can be like a, like same image that touches you in, in some way, like it really speaks to you. Uh, it can be very artistic. It can be like a famous photographer, but uh, the value is very much related to the fact that can you build a community around that collection, around that series. So this is something the photographers are just discovering as they, they enter the space. And it's something that I saw uh, the opportunity of building another doubt around it. And it's the, the first time I actually speaking about this. I, I wrote some blog posts so far uh, and I spoke privately uh, in, in the Fingerprints uh, Discord. But there was one piece from, like, the most iconic piece from this collection of Justin that was fractionalized on fractional as well. And me and one other Fingerprints member who uh, also, like, helped me with the, the financial side of it, uh, we executed the buyout of the, the fractions. We bought the piece from every single fractional oh, wow. holder. And the idea now is to refractionalize it, but use it as a governance token for this new photo DAO, which is called RAW, like wow. the, the file extension. And the idea is to help photographers getting into the space, not to have to build the community on their own. So we'll have this DAO, we'll help you on board uh, in the space, we'll collect your work, so de-risking completely, like the, mm-hmm. the onboarding risk or failure risk, and you have a community there, so like you don't have to, to attend to the community and build something yourself. But also to the market uh, itself, it's going to be a way to generate a signal of what is uh, interesting to collect or not. The thing that is missing on photography that I saw elsewhere in generative art uh, and in other forms of art is this curation. So people are very confused. What should I be buying? Should I be buying like the most expensive thing? But so I want like the photographers themselves are going to be members and they are going to do the curation. Into the market, we are going to see, okay, there's this organization that is putting uh, skin in the game, collecting these pieces, 
uh, and they have like these amazing artists that are the uh, the curators. So it must have quality. Mm-hmm. This is a, a concept that is not possible at all in the traditional world. So it's uh, I'm very excited to to do something like this. It's certainly less transparent in the traditional world. <laughs> I, I'm sure it, it 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 sort of happens, I guess, at like you know the Barnes Foundation or something, mm. but like. You know, you, it's not like anyone really knows what's happening. Yeah, yeah, and 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 transparency is also an issue that we have in DAOs because if you're fully transparent, like you run the risk of being front runs, people are going to to buy the stuff before you buy. So you you have to keep part of the process not fully transparent, but at least you know the rules of the game in a relatively clear uh, way. I'd say. It seems like a, a, a better process than the more traditional world. Who decides what you buy? On Fingerprints, we have a, a curation committee. So it, it generally, people start talking about something. We don't rush to buy anything because it, like uh, the idea is to be very focused, so we take our time. But people discuss in the curation channel uh, in general, and the curation committee digs deeper. And we have in the curation committee uh, artists like Def B, for example, he's in the curation committee. We have Sam Spike, which is a, a traditional uh, curator, worked at Matt, worked at Freeze, Sotheby's. And they like we do the, the like check the smart contract. So there's a more uh, a deeper process and see if it fits the collection. Uh, so like the curation committee was elected and it's expanded from time to time. How many people is it? Currently, the creation committee has uh, six people, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay, it's small. That makes sense. Yeah, but now yeah, now yeah. we are uh, actually experimenting. It's going to almost triple oh, because wow. the DAO has grown quite a lot as well. And we have to. It it needs to be one uh, in a size that there's always someone online to be part of the committee. And also because right now we are getting to a point where uh, we need to be more transparent about the stuff we didn't collect. So we have to say to, to the people, so, because people know, okay, that's what we decided to collect and that's great, but why didn't we collect this, 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 and like the list just keeps growing. And we have to report, okay, this was uh, looked into by the curation committee. We think it's not fitting to our thesis or uh, we cannot really build an important enough collection of this artist, so it doesn't make sense to, to add to, to our collection. So it has, you have to report back to the community as the community grows. Got it. Cool. And and, and I would say one one thing regarding kind of like transparency. I think for 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 pleaser, you know, I guess I'm in the in the like the council sort of that handles sort of the operations type of stuff. But they, you know, the way it works there, just to give a, a little bit of contrasting, and Lisa's seen this, is actually like the entire DAO votes on every purchase. Um, mm. which is, you know, a little bit like chaos in a lot of ways, <laughs> yeah. definitely a lot of work, but, but, you know, Pleaser also has like three full-time people now. So it's like that the DAO pays. So it's, it is actually like their job of managing those votes. But for a while it was quite a bit more chaotic. And I think we have some pieces coming out soon that, you know, to Luis's point, you can't totally be fully transparent about, but, you know. Once things are set up, you know, you kind of can, the DAO votes on it. Yeah, I think the, seeing the two processes being part of two, it's it's interesting because uh, I think it works like this well for Pleaser for two reasons. 
First, uh, it's a smaller group. Fingerprints has like over 200 members. Pleaser has like 50 or, or 60. Uh, but also, I think the main point is most of the stuff we've collected on fingerprints was in the market and was part of a series. So if we show the intention of buying, you can change the price immediately because like in that sense, it's like a coin, like everybody can could go to OpenSea and buy in front of us. For Pleaser, like something like an auction or like anything that is very hard, most of the, the, the things Pleaser decided to, to buy, like auctions and, and things like that, it's very hard for a single member to go and front run. Uh, hmm. So it wasn't really an issue in, in this 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 case. I think both of us were going to to face challenges uh, in the future because of these uh, different models. But I think they work. Uh, I, I think like for Pleaser, th this model works very nicely. One thing to also point out is you know in the normal art world, someone who is a cur on the curation of one sort of museum or foundation is very competitive with someone else who's on the in, in curation and of another foundation or museum. But if you know this, Louise and I are both in both DAOs, uh, which, you know, I think is like a testament to how different, what the, some of the differences culturally in um, generative and digital art yeah. um, are huh. versus like TradFi art, Trad art. Sorry. I, I'm just like, anytime I want to say traditional now, I just say TradFi, but I really mean. <laughs> Trad art. Trad art. There we go. Trad art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, Louis, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us the story of Fingerprints DAO, uh, where you're at, where you're going, some of the new ideas coming out. And thanks for answering some of my kind of, I know, quite basic questions about NFTs, but it's uh, it's always fun to explore this space. So, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a uh, it's, uh, very uh, deep rabbit hole. It's very hard to, to pack uh, everything in one episode. But I think like for people wanting to learn more, just follow the people in the in the space. Try to go deeper, go to the Discord. It can be a little bit chaotic, but it's a, a great way to learn. And people are very kind, I would say. Like they're very helpful. They try to, to onboard people uh, in the best way possible. So just trying to do a little bit more uh, to dig a little bit deeper. Try joining joining a DAO. Like learning by uh, doing is uh, the best way to do in this space. Cool, Tarun. Thanks for bringing us together for this episode too. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I mean, my hope with this episode has was been sort of some of the NFT things in general is, you know, to present to the kind of technical audience uh, of this podcast some of the cool technical things at the edge of of art and crypto. My hope is that someone who's listening to this podcast goes out and is a developer and says, hey, look, I have this idea for this crazy genre of art. And because they heard of it here, they they went in and did it. Because I think there are a lot of developers who don't realize how how much of a technical challenge some of the, the generative art on the edges, and it, it could actually be super interesting to them. And my ultimate wish is that we someday actually figure out a way to incorporate zero knowledge proofs into this entire thing. And I have actually a few ideas that I'm going to want to share with you, Tarun, when I'm in New York later this this year and brainstorm with some of your NFT people. Maybe I can share that with you too, Luis. But yeah, this this idea of like adding cryptography somewhere in there could be pretty cool too. It's definitely possible. I think the hard part is actually getting the aesthetic narrative correct, which is like 
one of the reasons, well, you know, outside of being too busy, one of the reasons I don't like make any art my, anymore is that like, I just don't like have a particularly strong thing that I would say concept that I like other than like rehashing my old concepts, which, <laughs> you know, maybe one, maybe Louise one day, one day that will be the, <laughs> the thing we work on together. <laughs> cool. All right. Thank you to the podcast editor, Henrik. Thank you to the podcast producer, Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.